Amen. Thank you, team, and you may be seated. And good morning and welcome to Boca Raton Community Church. We're so glad you're here today. Starting next week, we will do a five-week series looking at seeking first. You know, in Matthew, it says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. What does that mean, and how do we play that out? So we're going to look at that as a church, and we're going to spend the month, we're going to do a devotional together, we're going to do some other things, and I'll announce that all next week, and really to understand, and also some vision for the coming months of time I'll be sharing next week as well. So we want everybody to be involved. If you're online, you can get the devotional. We'll figure that out and let you know through the chat as well. And that'll start in October. So the five Sundays of October just happens to be once or twice a year. We have five Sundays in one month. We're gonna do all five Sundays on this. But today we're in the Minor Prophets. And we've been doing a couple of weeks study, two weeks ago on Micah, last week on the early part of Habakkuk. So we're going to finish Habakkuk today, chapters two and three. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, turn there, if you will, to the book of Habakkuk. You can find it. It's not Haggai, but it's next to Zephaniah, not Zechariah. So if you can get those names down, you'll find your way really well. It's a great book, and as I said last week, it's only one of two books of the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament, that have the person talking to God before God talks to the people. Usually prophets talk to the people about what God told them. Moses came off of the mountain and talked to the people. Joshua heard from God and talked to the people. God speaks to people, and then we share it with others, but this is different. Job is the other book which we mentioned a little about, and Habakkuk. Habakkuk was not a happy camper during this time. It's about eight centuries before Christ, and the country of Israel was in a bad state. It was not doing well, evil in the land, and God seemed to not do anything about it. And so Habakkuk complains twice in the early part of the book of Habakkuk. It's a little confusing. There's the man Habakkuk and the book Habakkuk, and I might be, I'm going to be talking about both. But the man Habakkuk talks to God and complains about two things. Do you remember what they were last week? God, you're not doing anything. Complaint number one. Remember? God, you're silent. You're not doing anything. What was complaint number two? God, you are doing something but I don't like what you're about to do. Because as a prophet, he knew what he was about to do occurred seven or eight years later. So it didn't occur right then, but it was gonna occur. He's a prophet, he knows what's gonna happen. And so I don't like your silence. I don't like the way you're gonna solve the problem. What was the problem? The people in Israel were evil and there was no one. And Habakkuk had this kind of like, I'm the only one who's righteous, which of course we know was not the case, but he kind of had that isolation syndrome that many of us have from time to time. I'm the only one going through this problem. And God said, no, I'm gonna solve it. The problem was he was gonna solve it with the Babylonians. Back then they were called Chaldeans, the Iraqis. The Iraqis were gonna solve the Jewish problem. This does not go well. It didn't go well then in his mind. It wouldn't go well now. Can you imagine now you go to Benjamin Netanyahu and go, we've got the solution to your problem in Israel. We got the Iranians. They're gonna solve your problem. We got the Iraqis. This doesn't go well. It doesn't preach well in Jerusalem. 
and it didn't preach well in Jerusalem eight centuries before Christ. But God was going to use the Chaldeans. And you remember I said he was mad because badder people were going to judge bad people. And he thought good people should judge bad people. And that's where we left it last week. We left Habakkuk on a watchtower, and we don't know if it was a real watchtower in the corner of the wall, or was it a metaphor that he was watching constantly? Not really sure, but there we are, we have him, he's watching. And that was the beginning of chapter two, and we left it there. Let's pick it up. Habakkuk's a prophet, and in chapter two, he gives five woes that are gonna happen. You know what a woe is? Woe is the same eight centuries before Christ it is now. Woe means bad. Don't do it. Woe, this is bad. And he gives five woes in it. Now, I'm not going to read chapter two because it is one depressing chapter. It's like Lamentations chapter one. If you want to really be depressed, read Lamentations chapter one. You got to get to chapter three to really get excited. But this chapter two is depressing. And so I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to start in verse 18, the fifth woe. So verse 18, chapter 2, 19 and 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him. That's the fifth woe. If you were reading chapter 2, you would see this is the fifth one. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. So it's a picture of idols. I don't know what you think of when you think of idols in the olden days. I think of Daniel sometimes, you know, that 70-foot idol that uh, they put together, the Babylonians, by the way, later on, this is about 150 years later, and they all had to worship it, and Daniel said, I'm not worshiping that 70-foot idol. Do you remember that? We think of idols as these big statues, and of course, if you're like me, you go to these museums around the world, and you go to these ruins around the world, and you see very large statues that we all presume they worshiped at one point in time, and they put their food, and they put their crops, and they gave offerings to these idols, as if these idols of fertility and the sun goddess and the sun god, uh, the moon god, and all these were going to do things. And yes, there was a sense of that, but we need to realize that most of the idols in that part of the world were this big. They were idols in the home. The idols were, I've seen them. I've, we have a, an archaeologist in our church who has a collection of incredible antiquities, and he's shown me the idols. He has some of these. He has helmets and he has all kinds of swords. It's really cool to see. And he's got these things and they're just little things and they're made from clay. They're made from wood. They're made from stone. They're made from metal. We're in the bronze and iron age now at this point in time so they can make them out of metal. And then if you were really wealthy, you would inlay them with gold, silver, and stones. So depending on how wealthy you were, you had a clay one, or you had a wood one, or you know, I'm, I'm wealthy, so I have a stone one, or you're really wealthy, you had a metal one with all this inlay, and you put it. So the question is, did you really believe that that little piece of clay, wood, or metal was going to be able to do anything? 
And I don't think they really always did. It was a representation of what they believed. Let me give you, this is a real serious subject, so I'm going to give you a little levity for a minute. Can I? Just for a, a few moments. A few years ago, have you ever watched a Disney movie or a Pixar movie? They do things with things that you don't think they should do, but you believe it. In other words, they animate inanimate objects, they animate animals and other things, and they give them human emotions, right? They give them human attributes, right? I mean, in 1989, a crab had feelings. Remember Sebastian, Little Mermaid? In 1994, we found out that lions had feelings, Little Lion King. In 1995, we found out that toys have feelings. Now, has anybody seen all three Toy Stories? Okay, good. Do you remember Toy Story 3? If you haven't seen it, you gotta go out and watch Toy Story 3. It's about the series of toys, you know, the various guys, Buzz Lightyear and Woody and all. They end up in a trash dump in an incinerator and they're about to be incinerated. And I am crying like a baby. Now, I know they're not going to land in the incinerator. It's a Disney movie. They're going to be rescued, and I'm still crying. I'm crying now. It is, do I really believe in toys? Well, it takes me back to my childhood, two generations ago, when Geppetto made a toy a human. You remember that? Pinocchio. And there we found out that crickets have emotions. Jiminy the Cricket. And wolves have emotion, and whales have emotion. Remember that? Do you really believe that? No, but you still watch it, and you show your children. Oh, wow. In 1998, we found out that bugs have feelings. In 2001, we found out that monsters have feelings. Monsters, Inc. In 2003, this is really good, we found out that fish have feelings, and that sharks really have feelings. Remember Bruce? You know, fish are, food, fish are friends, not food, right? 2004, we found out that superheroes have feelings, the Incredibles. 2006, we found out that cars have feelings. 2007, we found out that rats have feelings, ratatouille, but really we already knew that because of Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse <laughs> two generations before that. So that wasn't really new news, it was just kind of partial news. 2008, we found out that robots have feelings. Wally. In 2009, we found out that dogs had feelings. Did you ever see the movie Up? If you've never seen Up, okay, this is, sorry, I'm really just joking a little. The first five minutes of the movie Up is the best five minutes of any movie in the history of the world. I'm telling you, it is. And it's a cartoon, and you'll be crying like a baby. In 2012, we found out that people of Scotland had feelings. brave. 2013, we found out the snowmen had feelings. Remember Frozen? Olaf? And here's the amazing thing. In 2015, we found out that feelings have feelings. Remember that movie Inside Out? Wasn't the biggest Disney movie, but it was amazing. It's all about feelings having feelings. Anger had feelings, all this. It was... Did you believe any of it? No, but it has affected you. What are the idols of today? I'm not worried about you worshiping Sebastian the crab. 
what do we fashion? There's a word in here that's fashion. What do we fashion today? And I'm not talking about clothes fashions. That's just a part of it. I really think we fashion ourselves. I really think we are our own idols. Now, yes, your children, your work, your money, your education, they can all be idols, of course. But I really think nowadays we are become so self-centered in our culture that we are the idols. Now, I brought up a phone. I always tell you to turn your phones off, but I still brought mine up, and it is on. Oh, it has a picture of my wife, right? If I took a picture of you, how would I take the picture of you today? I would go like this, right? Because I want to be in the picture, right? Now, I wouldn't get you all in because I'm not a millennial or a Gen Zer who could get every one of us in the picture and themselves. I can't yet. Still working on it. But isn't that amazing? Everywhere you go in the world, we travel all over, the pictures are like this. Why? Because I need to be in the picture. Because life is about me. We are the idols. And Habakkuk says, whoa, on this one. It's the fifth woe. My friends, you can read the other four woes, and if they apply to you, great. But this fifth one applies to us. What are we fashioning about ourselves that we are the center of the universe. Because my friends, we are not the center of the universe. He's the center of the universe and we need to worship him. Do you believe that? Yes. And Habakkuk was beginning to get it. He was, if you read the book of Habakkuk, the book, you learn so much about the man because he started and then chapter two is just kind of this, like it is really tough. And then chapter three, it's really cool. He starts out with a prayer, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, chapter 3, verse 1, according to the Shigonoth. Now, what on earth is a Shigonoth? It is a musical word to tell the choir how to sing. Where There's argument about exactly what it means, exactly do they sing louder, do they sing softer, do they sing faster, do they sing slow. We're really not sure, but it is a musical annotation to this that this chapter three, what we call chapter three, was really a song. He wrote a song of praise about God and about the fact that those battered people called the Chaldeans were coming down in a few years to correct the problem in Israel. And he wrote a song that was sung for centuries afterwards. It really should be in the Psalms, the songs that are sung. And there's several songs throughout the Old Testament that are not in the Psalms. The song of Miriam, the song of Moses, some of the songs of David, other songs. This is one of them that could be in the Psalms. And what does he say? O oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive us. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He knows wrath is coming and all he's saying, God, I'm trusting you, but just... Give us a, just a, a tablespoon of mercy. God came and on he gone, he goes. It's a beautiful picture. And I want you to turn over to verse 16. And I want you to write down two words. 
Can you do that? Write them down. If you gotta type them into your phone, type them in. I want you to write down the word though. T-H-O-U-G-H, though. You got it? Write it down. I'm not seeing people write. You gotta write it down, you will forget this. And this is what is not forgettable in this whole passage. Though, word one. Word two, yet. Y-E-T. You see, when I walk towards you, I go left. I don't say it out loud, but somewhere up there in my mind, it's going, okay, next, next. I'm walking towards you. But this is though, yet. See it? Though this is happening, yet will I do this. So the though is something very important, but my response is not to the though, my response is yet. In other words, what I think is gonna happen, so you get mad at me, I get mad at you, that's just a normal thing. You do something good to me, I do something good to you. Just kind of give and take, give and take, but this is though something happens, yet I'm gonna do something else. Do you see that? So he gives two of these. He starts, he kind of gets us going in verse 16, so I'll read it. But it's 17, 18, and 19 that's so beautiful. 16, though I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. He is waiting for what's happening, going to happen. Though I know all this is happening, yet... I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though I know I'm gonna trust in God, yet will I trust in God. Though I know, yet will I trust. And then verse 17, 18, and 19, and I'm gonna say this once, and I've said it probably 200 times in the last few years, one of the best three verses in the Bible. Seriously, this is does not get any better than this. Though, it's a though yet comment. Though the fig tree should not blossom, though the fruit not be on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails, though the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold, though there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength, He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. What on earth does that mean? He starts out with though, and he gives six things. Though the fig tree should not blossom. We don't get figs in the United States, but my family loves figs. We have some Middle Eastern blood in us. We love figs, and I don't like them, but they do. And so if you wanna give my family figs at Christmas, It's really a a dessert. It's sugared, they fix them beautifully. It's like a dessert. It's it's like a a, a great piece of chocolate in that old way. It's something that you have, it says, you know what, desserts are gone. All the peripheral stuff is gone. He starts with the peripheral, it's over. There is no more figs. And then he goes and says, nor fruit beyond the vines. So that's wine. Now, we don't get wine in the old age. There was two purposes of wine. One was to get drunk. This is not that purpose. The other was to purify and to correct the taste of water. 
So wine was used, one part wine, three parts water. It would take out the impurities because of the fermentation and it would give it a fruit taste, so it would taste good. Have you ever had sulfur water? If you ever had bad well water, it's not bad for you, but it just tastes terrible. You put, what do we do down here? Well, if you have that, we put an orange, cut up an orange, cut up a strawberry, cut up a lemon, cut up a lime to, it's not lime juice we're drinking, it's just water that's been cut so it tastes better, right? So he says, that's going away, it's gone. Now water's not gone, but the good taste of water and the impurities of water You just gotta drink water, but it's gone. And then he goes on and goes, and the olive tree, the olives will stop producing, they shall fail. Number three, so your desserts are gone, your good water's gone, and then he says the olives are gone. Now again, olives were used for a couple of things to eat, obviously, and in the Middle Eastern Mediterranean diet, olives are a very strong part, but the olive oil was a commodity. It was important because olive oil gave you heat to oil. It gave you lighting. The oil lamps was not petroleum back then. It was olive oil. And then to cook. They did cook with some other oils, but they cooked with olive oil. So the cooking, everything in your home, the cooking, the heating, and the lighting goes away. So the good fruits go away. The tasty things go away. Fresh water goes away. And all The household things go away. They're gone. And then he doesn't stop there. He goes, and the fields yield no food. Every country has a staple food. If you go around the world, it'll be potatoes. It'll be corn. It'll be rice. It'll be wheat. It'll be yucca. Here it was barley. Barley was the staple. You remember in the book of Ruth? It was time for what? The barley harvest. Chapter one, last verse of chapter one of Ruth. It was time for the barley harvest. You remember Jacob and Esau when Jacob made a pot of porridge and Esau sold his birthright? It was made from barley. I don't know that I'd sell my birthright for barley soup. I don't know that I would do that, but he did. Barley, and here it is. The staple is gone. We don't realize it because here in America, we eat more things and different things than most all countries combined. But when you go to the Far East, you go to other parts, it's rice with a little scallions in it or a little onions in it. It's not rice with all these things, you know, or you go somewhere else, it's potatoes. You go somewhere else, it's a cornmeal base. It's all these things. The base is gone. Your foods are gone. So your desserts are gone, your water's gone. The way you run your household is gone, and even your core basic foods, the things that you mill, the things that you grind, the things that you make bread with, the things that you bake with, all gone. And he doesn't stop there. He goes, and the flock be cut off from the fold. The flock are sheep. Okay, again, we think sheep, we think little lamb chops to eat. They would shear the sheep for clothing, to make wool, Sheep were there to get clothes. Nowadays, we buy synthetics and we buy them and they're no good in three or four months or a year or whatever, we buy more. Back then, you made a good coat, you made good cloaks, you made good togas, whatever you made, they lasted years and years and years because they were made with, from sheep, from wool. 
That's going away. There's no more sheep. This group of Chaldeans are going to come down, and they're going to destroy the olive trees. They're going to destroy the vineyards. They're going to destroy the fields. You know, you can burn a field. The barley fields are going to be destroyed, and then they're going to take away all the sheep. And then to make matters worse, he says, and there shall be no herds in the stall. The herds are cows. Now again, and a good American thinks of hamburgers and steaks. They were beasts of burden. They ran their lives with cows, donkeys, other of those kind of beasts to run their carts, to do their commerce, to take goods to market, all those things. They're gonna be taken away back to Babylon. So one of the most depressing verses in the Bible is verse 17 of chapter three of Habakkuk. No more fruits, no more fresh water, no more household goods, no more staples, no more clothing, no more ways to run a business, all gone. And though that happens, the man Habakkuk says, yet. See, he's going, he's looking at all this disaster that's coming and he takes an abrupt turn and goes yet. And what does the yet say? Yet I will rejoice. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. If you don't know anything else about the Bible, is God is there in the midst of the tragedy. And we need to take joy in it and understand our salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. And then this is what he says. And you remember I mentioned last week at the beginning that this is about a storm, not a storm like a rainstorm or a thunderstorm or hurricane. It's a storm of people coming to destroy. It's a storm. It's a real mountain they have to cross. And he says, God makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. In other words, he is going to get us through, and we can't get through with these shoes. He's going to give us new feet to go up the mountains. You've all seen pictures, and many of you have seen in person when you go to Colorado, you go to the Middle East, or you go to some places, and you see those sheep, and you see those oryxes, and you see them. What are they doing? They're on these ledges that are so tight. And how can they stand them? Because they weigh as much as I do. And sometimes more. How can they do it? Because of their feet. Their feet. Hold them. And God didn't say, or Habakkuk didn't say, oh, he's going to give you a little more money to make it through. He's going to give you a little more herds to make it through. He's going to give you the feet to walk through this incredible calamity that's about to make it, that's about to come. Years and years ago, many people don't know that, especially if you've emigrated to the United States. The United States is huge, like 3,000 miles from Atlantic to Pacific. Up at, through most of our history, up until the early 1800s, you could never get from the Atlantic seaboard to the Pacific seaboard, unless you went all the way around South America to get there. George Washington never saw the Pacific Ocean. No one before 1800, unless they took a ship all the way around, or they could go to Panama and go through the 
uh, mosquito yellow fever infested jungles of Panama or Nicaragua and to chance it and go across and catch another ship back up. So the Spanish controlled the Baja and California and then the British and the French, et cetera, and the other. Well, finally, the America became America and our third president, Thomas Jefferson, said we need to find a way to get from the East Coast to the West Coast without going around Tierra del Fuego, whatever it is called down in Argentina. And so he sent two men out with about 30 people. You remember their names? Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark. It was 1803. And so they took canoes and they went up the Mississippi River. Then they went at St. Louis and went up the Missouri River and they got all the way up into Montana and just prior to Montana and they saw something that no American had ever seen before, the Rocky Mountains. And you know what they did? This is an amazing thing. You know what they did? They took their canoes and put them on their shoulders and said, we're going to walk across this mountain range. And little did they know that that mountain range was hundreds of miles wide. So they're walking up the mountains with the canoes. They're canoeing the mountains. Can I just tell you, you can't canoe the mountains. One person, Sacagawea, said, we'll all die unless we buy some horses and we horse our way across the mountains, and on the other side, there's another river, the Snake River that became the Columbia River that took them, what we now call Oregon, to the coast. And so they abandoned their canoes, and they bought horses, and they crossed the mountain ranges alive. You see, what got us here is not always going to take us there. And so many of us say, well, you know, my education got me here, my money got me here, my, you know, good personality got me, my brains got me here. Well, can I just tell you, God needs to intervene in your life. There needs to be an intervention. And you cannot canoe your way across the mountains. And you cannot walk through calamity by yourself. God has promised that he will give you what it takes to get through the mountain. We Americans would like to pray, get us around the mountain. You know, get me around the storm. Move the storm or move me. I don't want to go through it. Habakkuk tells us if you're going through the storm, God is even going to give you the feet to walk through the storm. And that's where faith and belief, because in this book is the first shred of understanding that the just shall live by faith. And what is the faith? Well, Hebrews, Galatians, and Romans tells us it's faith in Jesus Christ, it's faith in the Messiah, it's a faith in our coming Savior, but it's also faith in knowing that God has our best interest at heart, and he will move us forward. And there's a sense of belief that also attaches, and that's what Clay just said a few moments ago, that attaches to our faith. It's an everyday belief. Am I gonna make it through today? And what's the answer? Yes, is it because of my idols? Because I'm smart, I know how to do things? No, that might get you a little ways, 
But let me tell you, you need help to get through the storms of life. And it's only through Jesus Christ. Now let me close this part, this, this little section here, with an illustration. Um, about 100 years ago, as America was getting industrially stronger, becoming the world's nation in terms of industry, in New York City, which became known as the number one city in the world and certainly the number one city in the United States, it's not that way now, but it was 100 years ago, they started building buildings to kind of magnify the importance that we had. The first one was the Chrysler Building, and then a few years later was the Empire State Building, and then right at that same time was a set of buildings called Rockefeller Center. Have you ever been to Rockefeller Center? It is amazing. If you've never been, when you go, you gotta go in the buildings, and you gotta go in the elevators, and you gotta see how massive these sets of buildings are and the public art that surrounds it. We just think of the skating rink and the Christmas tree that's put there every year, but it is a set of massive buildings. In front of the building that faces Fifth Avenue is a huge statue of Atlas. Remember Atlas? Atlas in mythology was the strong one holding the earth. You see that picture behind it's one of the buildings of Rockefeller Center and there's Atlas barely holding. He is the superhuman that can barely hold up. It's so, he had, see the legs? He had to go down on his knees to hold the earth up. It's just an amazing picture of the strength of the world, but I've stood there, and if you look across the other way, it's looking at Fifth Avenue, which was the retail center of the world, but across the street is that. You know what that is? St. Patrick's Cathedral. Atlas is looking at the church. He's not looking at Rockefeller Center, the epitome of humanity at the time. He's looking at Jesus, at the church, and he's being crushed by the earth over him. You see the picture? Now he's a superhuman. Now inside St. Patrick's Cathedral are several statues, but there's one very incredible statue, not very big. It's a picture of the boy Jesus holding the world. Take a look at it. You see how he's holding the world? He's holding it like this. You see, he's got the world in his hand. Now, I know some people don't like that song, he's got the whole world in his hand. But let me tell you, Jesus has got this one. He's got you. He is not crushed under the events of the world. And you may feel crushed under the events, and you should feel crushed, because you're no Atlas. But when you believe in Jesus Christ, he's got it. He understands it. The boy Jesus has it, for goodness sakes. He grew up and died on a cross for us. The man, Jesus, has got this, my friends. We don't. I don't. You don't. Jesus does. That's what belief in him is. Do you believe that? Amen. That's what this book is about. Now, I don't know what the future holds. I'm no prophet. I don't know. I have no idea. And I'm not doom and gloom at all. It's not about doom and gloom. But I know this, we have individual issues. 
We have national issues. We have city issues. We have family issues. You have your business. There's all kinds of issues, and many people just feel so crushed. Uh, we took a team of 10 of us up to a child disciple forum group with about 500 people, and they said the biggest problem with kids today is that they're crushed with all the anxiety. Anxiety? Anxiety is killing, and suicide in kids is beginning at five years old. The biggest increase in suicide of any age group is five to 11. Five years old to 11 years old. The anxiety, and my friends, we have the answer. Jesus is the answer. He's the answer for your life and for your issues, but don't make him an idol on your mantelpiece. God has called us to disciple others and to share with others. God has called us to tell the story that you don't have to be crushed by the weight of your life, that Jesus can answer it. And it's not that he's going to take you around everything and no. You're going to walk through some things. But I tell you what, I'd rather have Jesus walking through me than my checkbook. I'd rather have Jesus than my brains. I'd rather have Jesus than, can I just say being real kind, than you. We need Jesus, don't we? And you'd rather have Jesus than me. Because he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And that's what this book of Habakkuk is. So next time you put your feast up to God and go, you're not speaking to me. And then when he starts, you go, that's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> Yet I will rejoice of the God of my salvation because he will give you the feet you need to have. Your feet may be different than their feet, but he will give you the feet of deer to climb those places that you have to climb. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, I'm going to close with another story. But before I do, I want you to know afterwards, if you would like prayer, if you go, I am crushed. I'm, I made some fun today, and I am not making fun of you if you are being crushed. I'm not making fun of people who have real emotion in issues. I'm not making fun of this. I've walked those. I've seen Christ give us feet of the deer as well. But if you need help in prayer, there'll be people, they'll be on the two ends. We're going to do something here at the end, but they'll be here and they'll be here. So if you want to come forward and pray, don't feel like everybody's going to look at you and go, oh, they're, they're going through a problem. Well, you know, we all are going through problems. At least we know you're willing to admit that Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, he's above all others. Jesus is the way, as Andre Crouch used to sing. But I want to talk about something else, if I could. So I need everybody to listen and all of you online to listen. Um, this is my 20th anniversary of being a pastor here this month. So 20 years. And for Elizabeth and me, it's been the most incredible ride of our lives. We have loved it. We were in business for 25 years, made a midlife shift at the age of 45, and came into this in the last 14 years as senior pastor. So let me ask you, who 
has been here newer than 14 years to today. In other words, you never had another pastor here but me. Raise your hand. Real, just keep it up. Look around. It's, it's like almost most of us, maybe over half of us, have come, and we are so glad you're here and that you're a part. Those who were here before, you raise your hand so everybody feels participating today. Good. Wow, we are a minority. We are the minority. You are the majority that have come in the last 14 years. Well, we welcome you. But here's the thing. So if you did the simple math, 45, and I've been here 20 years, I'm 65 years old. Elizabeth and I have been trying to figure out when is the time that you pass the torch? When is the time that you move forward? When is the time that you let other people take leadership? And uh, so we've been praying through it literally for years because I knew 65 was coming. It's not one thing you don't know it's coming. COVID kind of stopped us from thinking about it. But over the last six months, we thought, and here's the thing, I'm a baby boomer. How many baby boomers in here? Raise your hand. A little participant. Okay, we are terrible at one thing. We're terrible at a lot of things, but one thing we're really terrible at is passing on leadership. We have two presidential candidates. Forget who you agree and disagree with. Can I just say they are way too old to do what they're doing? That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying good, bad, or indifferent. We have people in business, family businesses that wait way too long. And we have people, there's studies out there that pastors stay way too long. And so Elizabeth and I have been praying, when is the time to step aside from being senior pastor? And we think the time is now. So we have been working with the elders for the last few months about transitioning. Now, let me tell you three things. We are not moving or leaving. We're not moving or leaving. So anybody says, oh, they're moving or they're leaving. Can I tell you? During COVID, we moved so close to the church that I can walk home faster than you can walk to your car. <laughs> I live 150 feet from where I'm standing. I live close here. We, li- we didn't buy next to the church so that we could move. We moved towards the church because we love this church. But I am going to move out of the corner office. There is a time to move the leadership This church does not belong to Bill Mitchell. This church is God's church and with his people. And 20 years ago, I sat where you sit. I was a citizen of this church and became the soldier of this church. And then shortly, and I'll talk about that in a minute, I'm gonna return back to the pew and be a citizen again. We're still gonna work here. Elizabeth and I both work here. We're gonna continue to work. We're gonna continue to do city lead, world lead. We're gonna continue to be a teaching pastor, continue. But here's the thing. We're in our fourth quarter. Hello. You know, Bill, you're getting grayer. Yes. We're in our fourth quarter. Do I want to work until I drop? Or, which is a choice, or do I wanna pass the baton while I'm running so that I can help second quarter and third quarter people get to their fourth quarter well. And that's what I want. I don't want to work until I'm sitting in a wheelchair and can't even lift my arm to hand the baton to the next person. And so many people do that. Mitchells don't retire. I am not retiring. My dad's 92 and he's still working. We don't retire. But 
There is a time and a place to be the senior leader. And that time has passed for me. And again, I love um, teaching people. I love uh, helping people get to the next stage. I love helping. We have an incredible team at this church. It is an unbelievable team of paid staff and volunteers. Now, we're a congregational church. So in congregational church, two things happen in a congregational church usually. Number one is when a new pastor comes, everybody in the leadership part of the staff have to offer their resignation. Listen closely. This is number two. That is not happening. You do not have to worry. We have a vision at this church that is so incredible and is moving forward, a vision that our staff, the people that you work with, all of us work with, are doing an incredible job. They shall remain, as will Elizabeth and me, but I will no longer be an elder and I'll no longer be the senior pastor. I'll be down the hall working among as a staff member. Now, the other thing people always say when someone leaves, well, there's two more things. The elders are kicking them out. Read my lips. We instituted this. We initiated this. In fact, the elders all said, wait three more years. Wait four more years. So they were a part of the wait group until we really started praying through this. And the other is, he must be sick. He must be sick. Or Elizabeth, one of us are sick. Can I just say, we are not? Now, I don't presume on tomorrow. God gave us today. I can't presume tomorrow. But if God gives us health, we are here for years. You're not getting rid of us. We're not going anywhere. You know, it's funny. Um, for those of you who don't know us, I live within a mile of every person in my family just about has lived over the last 100 years. We don't move. I travel all over the world. People go, oh, you must be planning to move there. No, I love traveling. I love working. But I know you don't agree with this, but there is no place like Boca Raton in the world. I love this place. I am a cheerleader for this place. I love this church. So I'm 65 years old. I've never been a member of any other church in my life. I started going to this church about a week after I was born, and I'm here. And God willing, I'll be here till you guys throw the sand on my grave. Hopefully 25 or 30 years from now. But here's the point. These are exciting times at this church. Now, okay, the other part of the congregational part of the church is that you vote the new, the new pastor. So the way the bylaws say is that... Um, the, the elders present someone to you, and then two weeks later, he preaches, and then we take a vote. That's a lot like a lot of congregational churches. We've done this for 70 years here. We are going to do that, but we are going to put a precursor to that of 100 days, because there's one person that has floated to the top for everyone as we've been praying over this the last six months. The elders, the, the leaders of the church have been praying, who should replace me? And there's one name that has risen, and God has done an incredible amount of work towards that. And can I introduce him today? His name is Matthew McDaniel.
So, isn't that great? Now listen, listen, we're not voting in two weeks. We're gonna take 100 days, which is October, November, December. We're kind of at that time that we don't wanna make a transition. So first part of January, 100 days from now, so that you get an opportunity. Many of you know him as the preacher who does when I'm gone, but you need to know him as a person. Uh, he'll be doing some things here. He'll be helping at Thanksgiving. He'll be helping at Christmas. He'll be doing other things. You'll get to see him. He'll be in the various groups. Jana, his wife, unbelievable. They'll be there so you can get to meet him. So when you vote, those of you who are members, two weeks after the formal presentation, which will be somewhere after the first of the year, maybe middle of January. So by the first of February, when he comes up and does the sermon, you will know him. And we can make an informed decision. So, and in that point, whenever that vote is taken, at that point, he becomes a senior pastor and I become a teaching pastor. Still a pastor, still a part of the church, still leading, still guiding, but not at a senior level. I will be down here because I truly believe that God calls generational leaders towards this church. We are a generational church. We're 70 years old, almost 75 years old. And God has a great plan for the next season of life. Do you believe that? Yes. Amen and amen. So I'm going to ask you two, come, come up here. They didn't see, they can't see your backs. They're back. Let's, come right here. Come right up here. Elizabeth, come on up. So here's the other thing people will say. They've kicked him out. They have not kicked us out because we're not going anywhere. We're going back. I won't think we'll sit in the third row. We might go back there a little. So I don't want to intimidate them sitting in the front row. These are incredible people. God has called the next set of leaders. Now, the rest of the staff will remain. The vision will remain. Pursue God. Build community. Engage the world. We're still going to be Christ-centered. We still want authentic community. We still want whole life generosity. All that stays the same, except we're going to do it with another leader team. So, Matthew, in 100 days and two weeks, I'll do it again. So, let's stand and pray. Can we do that? Now again, if you have a spiritual need and you wanna come forward, we're gonna be standing here if you wanna greet us, that's great. But if you want to pray, there'll be people at both sides here. Our prayer people will be there. There'll be elders in the lobby. If you wanna to talk to anybody, you wanna learn more about how we run our church here. But I am very excited for the next stage, the next chapter of Boca Raton Community Church. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for allowing all of us to be here and so many people who've come in the last 14 years. I can't wait to meet the new people that'll be coming in the next 14 years. God, you're gonna fill this place up and thank you for calling Matthew and Jana to us years ago to be a part of our team, to be a group leader, to work in the various women's and men's ministries and to preach from time to time. And now you're calling him and leading him towards being the senior pastor of this church. Father, we know there's a lot of details to work through and a lot of people to meet and votes to take and sermons to preach. All that will come, Lord, but we pray a blessing on this family, on their children, and on each one of us here at Boca Raton Community Church. I pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everyone said,
Amen, amen, amen. God bless you. We are dismissed.